Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. On Fridays, we do something called the brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio, which requires someone bright in Hamilton on the radio. That's how it works. And who can converse. Mike Fortune is the host of the Hamilton Network on Cable 14. Always love having Mike on here. Mike, how are you? Hey, Scott. So nice to be here again. I'm well. How's the whole family? Everyone's doing well? We're, well, we're not doing as well as you. People don't know this. Last night, you won the Catch the Ace in Hagersville, right? <laughs> That's, yeah. Well, I'm doing this interview from Mexico right now. We hopped <laughs> on a plane and here we are. Uh, isn't that something, eh? What, what, what a great fundraiser. Uh, and, and man, to this guy out in Caledonia, what, two point, was it? 2.5 two, or? Two, no, two and a little bit. Two, two million and a few dollars, but, uh, and, that's, and, and isn't that tax free? You don't have to claim any of that. I yeah. think that's correct. I think that's correct. And by the way, in case anyone is wondering, no, Mike didn't really win just no, so no one thinks I did that. Not. And he's not really in Mexico, but I'll <laughs> tell you this, you say great fundraiser. Fundraiser. This I didn't know anything about this thing until late on in it. This is this was not just a good idea for a fundraiser. This went about as perfectly for them as you could because this thing could have ended on the first or second draw, and no one would have ever heard about this thing. It, it's almost similar to that uh, show that um, Howie Mandel used to host, right? Deal or No Deal. With, with, with the briefcases, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it worked out really well for them. 40-some-odd weeks uh, of going at this, raising tons of money. And to your point, I didn't really know about it until about a month ago myself. Uh, and then you're, then I'm like, I'm calling up some of my friends in Caledonia. I'm like, well, I can't make it out there in the line. Are you by any chance going to wait in line for the next six hours? I'll give you 10 bucks or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and it does. You're right. It was very similar to Deal or No Deal, which just as you're talking, what they should have done is had Meghan Markle come back and hold one of the envelopes. <laughs> I mean, that have been something. Eh? I, I know that she has sort of, you know, made may not been exactly complimentary of her old job because it didn't use her brains. Uh, not exactly sure when she signed on for that. That she thought when they opened asked her to open the briefcase, they were also asking her to, you know, describe nuclear fission or something. I mean, it's just, you know, exactly. what did she hey, think you know was going to be the, the thing? The but. gentleman out there kind of running things and calling the number. I think his name was Dan. Boy, he sure did a great job. Lots of energy there last night. And and, uh, hey, uh, you know, all the best to the to the, the, the man and the family that won a, a little bit of money. And uh, I hope he can really, really enjoy it now. You know, the other thing I thought when I heard that, and I, look, I don't know this person. I don't think I know the person, um, I, the winner. As far as I know, I don't know the person. So I know nothing about him. I know nothing about his situation. But we've heard over the years, so many people who win these things and then, you know, a year or two later we hear, oh, it's all gone. I, you know, every time now I hear of someone who is, for the lack of a better term, Joe Public, right? Just the, just the average ordinary person who comes into money like this. I, my first thought now, Mike is, oh geez, I hope they've got someone who's helping them out and is going to make this thing work. So this ends up as a happy story. First call should be to a financial advisor, a lawyer, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, and really get your ducks in a row here and uh, still try, if you can, to live within your means, I think. Um, but maybe you can treat yourself a little bit more. But yeah, if, if you don't go crazy, depending on their current situation, we don't know it. Uh, he's, he, he, they could be potentially set. So, yeah. I've, I, yeah. It's, it's a funny thing because over the last number of years and, and, you know, look, there's so many lotteries now and we have gambling around every corner now and every Don't commercial, I know, but every commercial, like gambling is everywhere now, but recently for whatever reason, whether it's TV shows or stories from Hamilton or whatever else. It's what I think of now. Whenever someone wins, I don't think, oh man, how lucky for them. For whatever reason, my first thought is, oh, I hope this thing ends well and we're not hearing about this person in two years being bankrupt because they blew everything. I hope, uh, and again, I've, I've thought about this. I think we've all kind of fantasized or thought about what would we do. Sure. Um, I, I would take some of my own advice with a financial advisor or lawyer. And then honestly, I think I would bury my head for six months or, or so and stay out of the public eye and just kind of really be low key about everything. Cause you know, you know, his phone's going to be ringing off the hook now with every, um, organization out there, you know, well, you know, wanting, uh, I'm not going to say a handout, but they're, they're going to, you know, Hey, can you contribute to this? Can you, can you, you help think? us with this? Right. You think, I mean, listen, he has more friends today than he, he had more, he has more classmates from high school today than he <laughs> ever knew of. It's like, you know, the people who, you know, say that, oh yeah, I was at the, uh, 
you know, I was at the Joe Carter home run game back in 1993. Mm -hmm. There were 290,000 people inside Skydome for that game, Mike, based on those who say they were. (laughs) The place only holds 40-something. But, yeah, this guy, I guarantee you that he now has people coming out of the woodwork everywhere, everywhere. Uh, Richard Marshall, by the way, of Nanticoke, and good for him. I, I guarantee you Richard Marshall has way more friends today than he did this time yesterday. But what does that say about our society? You know, you come out of the woodwork after how many years, you know, you don't know what these relationships are like. You know, per, Scott, I, you, you win $2.5 million tomorrow, Scott. I'm not calling you and asking you for a handout. I'm giving you a little bit of time, and then I'm going to call you. I'm going to send you a quick little text, congratulate you, and I hope you enjoy it. It's not about money. We become so greedy. Yeah. And I think if you can just be happy for someone and just leave it at that, our world could be a lot happier. Well, place, that's and, for sure. You know, and maybe I'm wrong. I mean, look, two two million dollars is two million dollars. I'm not going to say no to it if someone walks up and hands me a check for two million dollars. But on the other side, you know, two million dollars is not the kind of money that goes forever. And so as I'm thinking, as we're talking here, I'm thinking, just imagine if you were one of those people who won the Powerball for <laughs> eight hundred million or something. Then, then. Yeah, you need to actually build, you need to take the first couple million and just build a 12-foot cinder block wall with barbed wire around your house just to keep all the the people out who are coming to look for money. You can give your money how you want, but uh-huh. you know you're going to be just bombarded. Just, those, yeah. those people must just be under fire nonstop from requests. Again, as, as much as we all kind of fantasize and think about it, yeah, you get into Powerball numbers. Uh, your life has drastically changed, and and it, and it's not like you have w- worked hard for it, and it's blood, sweat, and tears. I'm sure maybe you've worked hard in your life, and and but you, you, this is luck. Let's face it, this is luck, and not a lot of people know how to handle this situation. Uh, and I I hope some you know calmer heads will prevail and. Like I said, I hope this, this Richard guy can just go and have some fun. Absolutely. Good for him. Good for him for winning. Yep. It was a, it was a fun thing around here for the last number of weeks. And you watch, they'll, they'll do it again, I bet. And it'll be one on the second week and everyone goes, oh, but you know what? There we <laughs> go. 50 bucks. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Mike, uh, a week and a bit ago now. Give or take, we had a federal budget that came down. A provincial budget, I guess, was first. And then a federal budget that came down. Uh, the federal budget added roughly $43 billion more to the deficit at a time when the government had said they were going to be really fiscally responsible. And now we had $43 billion more. And then yesterday, uh, or Wednesday, I guess, we have the city budget that was passed. Uh, yesterday was the city budget. Anyway. Uh, Wednesday, I got it. Wednesday was the city budget. I'll get it right eventually. This week, this week, let's put it that way. And again, a bigger increase than we've seen in a long, long time, maybe ever double last year's 5.5%. You know, and as each one of these budgets is presented and as each one has the people behind it saying, oh, you know what, the, we're, we're being really fiscally responsible. And all as the taxpayers here is ka-ching, ka-ching, more money out of my pocket. Why, Mike, why can no government, and, and look, we're talking about governments across the spectrum here. Why can no government show restraint? Why does every government overspend its ability to have the money that it needs? Gee, that's like a, a $40 billion tax question yeah, right there. It uh, is. I, <laughs> I, 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 I think what I, I truly believe that they all try to do what they can. And then once you start to dig into the numbers and you go a little bit deeper, and we have an issue here, we got homelessness here, an opioid crisis here, homelessness there, everything starts to add up. And now we're also, you know, throw in post-COVID or the tail ends of COVID, inflation, you look at what's going on throughout the world, everything is just skyrocketing. So they all like to say the right things. Of course, we've had lots of elections in the last year as well. But when push comes to shove and you get the auditors involved and the finance people involved, you start to scratch your head and you're like, uh, guys, some of those promises or ladies and gentlemen, some of those promises you made, uh, it's not going to fly unless you are willing to sacrifice a lot. And who is truly willing to sacrifice and make campaign promises saying, well, we're going to hack and slash here and hack and slash there. 
it's not going to work. That's true. People don't get elected by saying we're going to cut stuff. But your look, your point is your point is reasonable about you know we've had COVID and we're coming out of that and there's inflation, so that's all reasonable. But that would be reason more reasonable if this was something that was unique to this budget. But we've had for as long as I can remember. When was the last time we had a budget that didn't? go over and create deficit. I mean, and it's happened. I know it's happened, but it's so rare that like, when was the last time the city came in with a budget and we said, you know what? We've got a 0% budget. We've dollar in, dollar out. We found a way to hold the line. Never, never. It, uh, it doesn't happen. And I think we kind of knew at some point here locally that this, because we've had a fairly decent ride over the last number of years with previous councils. You knew the bu- bubble was going to burst at some point, and there was going to have to be a year when the budget was going to have to be up to where we are right now, 5.8, give or take, whatever it was. It was just, it, it was a matter of time. I had a Councillor Spatafora on uh, a number of weeks ago just before the budget, and, you know, had previous councils, and he wasn't pointing blame or pointing fingers by any means, but they tried to keep it as low as possible, but, you know, maybe half a percent this year, half a percent next year, it's a slow creep as opposed to this much larger bump that we had this year might have softened the blow a bit. Who truly knows? But things are always coming up that you and I, the general Joe Public, we don't know exactly what's going on. We can look at all the line items and see everything. But again, it's tough choices that have to be made. Yes, it is. And my point, though, is I don't believe that they make tough choices. I don't believe that, by and large, they make tough choices. Tough choices would mean cutting some things to help this, whether it's provincial, federal, or municipal, that would help this by saying, you know what, that, yeah, it's nice to have, but we just can't afford to do that right now. Well, I I think, and, and I don't know where you would go and what you would start to cut, the only thing I can think of, if, if you really want to put your money where your mouth is to elected officials, you want to, you want to decrease things a little bit, perhaps you look at your own salaries and your own bonuses. Well, how about this? And I've thought this for a long, long time. For every percentage that taxes go up over a certain amount, let's say we say, okay, 2% is the, you know, the standard, the average has been two. Let's say three. Let's give them 3% to play with, all right? Anything above 3% is a percentage of your salary we take away. I, it, hey, it, in, in theory, it all sounds wonderful, but you know it's all going to have to be voted on, and you know they won't, they, they won't vote on that themselves. It, it's going to take a very strong individual or individuals around a council table or at Queen's Park or wherever the case might be for whatever level of budget to, to stand up and all come together and agree to something like that. And I think then if that ever did happen, then I think you will see some serious change and a country really start to move forward and they can wave the flag and say, hey, we figured some things out here. Well, I don't know what it's like in other countries. I have no clue what other budgets are. I've never done my research or homework on that. Um, so I don't think this is hyper central to Hamilton, Ontario, no, Canada. No. Uh, it's got to be like this across the board. Sure. And, and you know what? Uh, honestly, the city councillors make roughly roughly $100,000 a year. So let's say they went to 5.85%. That would mean they would lose $3,000. It's not the end of the world. It's not going to be something that's going to bankrupt them. It might make no difference at all. But again, we're talking salaries. Let's go back to federal for a second. To, tomorrow. So after we have this budget with $43 billion or whatever it is extra, now added to the deficit. Tomorrow, every single MP in Ottawa gets a nice, generous salary increase. They get a raise. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, to me, Mike, it is, it, it is so tone deaf. The, the, the very least that they should have done, the very least, and this is so inconsequential, but at least it would show some, even if it's only platitudinal, it would have showed something is as part of this budget, say, we are canceling all increases for this term of government because look, we all make okay money and an extra five grand or 10 grand or 15 grand or whatever it is when we're making 160, 170, it's not that big a deal really. So just to show that we are in this with you, we're not going to, we're canceling the raises as a line item, minuscule as something that shows at least a participation in the pain, much, much, much bigger. They never do that though. Never. 
And and I agree with you 100%, and I think that is something uh, – it's too bad it isn't looked at that way because no matter what counselor you are or or politician, how far left you are or how far right you are, you're always saying all the right things. But isn't it truly amazing that when it comes to your your own pocketbook, all of a sudden it's like, well, well, wait a second, Uh, uh, (laughs) I need that money too. Well, what about those people out there that are making a lot less, don't have employment, are on ODSP, whatever the case might be? Yeah, it's a, it would certainly be a very good faith move, and I think it would put a, a lot of people's minds in the right set, if you will, uh, come up to the next election when a government has made that choice and said, we're not doing this. Um, they would be heroes, I think. I, I think they would truly make a difference. Well, I think, and I'll have to look this one up, but I also believe that all the politicians, federal and provincial, get a housing allowance and other things that are they're able to do. You know what? Housing is one of the biggest issues right now. So you get a housing allowance that allows you to not even have to feel the same pressures. How about saying we're going to reduce that? So, I mean, there's so many things, Mike. And again, as a line item on the budget, it would make no difference. But I think in the ears and eyes of the public, it would make a massive difference that there was at least an understanding of what's going on. Yeah, and I'm not going to pretend to know um, what goes on and and all the political goings on, but, you know... it would be very interesting to know also how much money is truly being wasted on consultants, on advertising, uh, on, on, on anything uh, that really doesn't affect the day-to-day lives. Uh, and it's too bad some of that can't be scrutinized maybe a little bit more and say, you know what, we really have to make some changes here. But I think you and I, you've been doing the show for, what, five, six years now? I think we seem to have this conversation uh, once a year. And we never hear, we never see any changes. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't uh, spend all of my time reading science journals, (laughs) largely because more often than not, I don't understand them. Let's be honest. They're, They're just way too intelligent and deep for a simpleton like myself. Nonetheless, sometimes if we're lucky, you can get a one that is not only easy enough to understand, but maybe someone has also written an article about it, which, eh, that even helps more. Well, that is the case here. There was an article in the journal Nature Energy about a study from Stanford University. Mike Fortune, by the way, with me from Cable 14. Uh, and it was the, the, the title of it is Scalable Probabilistic Estimates of Electric Vehicle Charging Given Observed Driver Behavior. Now, Mike, basically what this is, it's a study of that they were doing in California because they're telling everybody they've got to get rid of all gas-powered cars in a few years, and they were looking at the electric vehicle power requirements, mm-hmm. and they've discovered that, you know what, um, yeah, we can't really have people charging their vehicles at home at night. We're not going to have, even with all kinds of extra infrastructure that we're building over the next few years, we will have nowhere near the amount of electricity that is required for this. You know, I, I hear this and I think, oh, we're told, hey, be good to the environment, buy an electric vehicle, an electric vehicle, get all this stuff. And then you're looking and I can see this happening here where the push continues, the push continues, and we suddenly realize, oh, wait, we can't support this amount of electricity. And suddenly our electrical bills are through the roof like everything else. We're talking about money. Mm-hmm. You know, is this not the kind of thing that you plan before you enforce a law like this? So, shocking, Scott, I'm not a scientist. I'm I'm not a very, I'm a simpleton like you when it comes to this stuff. But I I have thought about this, and I have had some discussions with others. I I don't know why they are shocked by this all of a sudden. We, We look at our electricity grid. We look at the rolling blackouts. We look what happens... Uh, when, when furnaces or air conditioners, as you say, go off, that's just air conditioners in little neighborhoods. So I am not surprised by this. I'm surprised that the experts and, are surprised. And, and, the, and the propeller heads are just kind of realizing and seeing this now, to be honest with you. And, and, and I get it. I, I, I'm not as I'm fearful for my kids. And if they decide to have kids, that's what I'm fearful for. What we're dealing with right now, listen, we've, we've contributed to this. Our parents have contributed to this. Um, but to be able just to 
turn the switch now and say, well, this is what we want to do in the next five to 10 years. It's a huge ask. And I really think the people that are making these decisions really need to sit back and maybe go back to the drawing board and, and say, maybe we have to do some other things. Look, uh, some of these ideas that are being proposed are not bad ideas. The issue is if you're going to push these ideas and tell people this is what you should be doing, surely you have to have the infrastructure in place to be able to support this. That's, that's my point. This seems like it's just, we're going to push stuff through that may be a really good idea, but you know, good ideas sometimes take time. Good ideas take time. However, if, if you're a car manufacturer, um, you want to sell stuff now. You, you want to keep making money now. And, and there's all this marketing hype behind all of this stuff. At least that's how one, one avenue you can kind of look at these things as well. Yeah. So the, in California, they're saying right now that they can't have everybody plug their electric vehicles in at home at night when is it, which is exactly when people will probably want to charge their car when they're asleep and is ready for the next day. Don't do that. So then they're saying, well, we'll do it during the daytime. Well, if all of a sudden everybody says, well, fine, then I'll go to work and I'll plug it in. First of all, by every account, there's not nearly enough plugs for all the cars. And second of all, then you're going to have electric problems in the daytime when already there is way more draw because of office buildings and everything else. So there's going to be a problem then. And as I say, they are now saying the electric bills are going to go way up as a result of this. It just, it seems, again, even good ideas, it seems every single thing, Mike, that they want us to do also comes with a, a maybe an unattended, but an attached giant price tag that just makes everything so, so, so much more expensive. Yeah, and, and it, of course, it, it falls on all of our shoulders. And, uh, you know, with the, with, minimum wage, not technically where it should be, I guess, for a living wage city and, and so on and so forth. You know, you, you look at the top 1% of earners, you know, this isn't going to affect them, um, but it will affect, it will affect, you know, those middle, the middle income people. I don't even know how much it will, will affect the low income people because it always seems like it's the middle income people. Everything gets kind of downloaded to them. Um, well, the low income I, people, Mike, are not, uh, unfortunately, they are probably not buying Teslas. No, or, exactly. So, so it's, yes, it's, and, and you're right, the high income people, it make no difference. So it's going to be the people who are in the middle that, that every government, this is the other irony of this, every bloody government, and I'm sorry, but it just infuriates me. Every government talks about, oh, we're all, we're all about the middle class. We're all for the middle class. Now, first of all, they can't identify or define what middle class is, but every single policy punishes the middle class. Of course. Yeah. Be, be, because it's, 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 it's the middle ground. It's the gray area. Oh, what happens in every decision that is kind of made around a boardroom table when you're talking, oh, let's, let's, let's just, let's just go into, let's just, let's call it even. Let's, let's go into the middle somewhere. Oh, it's that gray area. We'll, we'll just throw it in there right now. We'll figure it out a little bit later. That's where you and I are. We're that middle class. We're the ones that really, I think, feel it uh, a lot more. And those are, that's how people can get away with making or not making a decision. The decision not to make a decision is, well, just throw in the middle class. <laughs> the, you know, I, I look at the idea of the electric vehicles in Canada, and we can say that this is a really good idea. We can say it's going to save money on gas. We can say it's good for the environment. We can say all of those things. Um, but, you know, I've driven on the 401. I've driven on the QEW. I've driven on all, a lot of the highways around. And right now, and I know things could change, but right now, you're going to have to stop and charge your vehicle if you're driving an electric vehicle. There's going to need to be these things because people are going to get low on charge. First of all, it's really not going to be something that I don't think a lot of people are going to want to do to have to stop for five hours to charge their car. And two, those, those, so what do you call those on route places on the highways right now? Some of them have a number of charging stations. You're going to need hundreds of charging stations at each one of these. And where is that infrastructure right now as we're being pushed towards this? Where is the infrastructure that's saying, not we're pushing you to this, but we're going to make sure that it's going to be working for you? Yeah, and, and so that comes down to, again, to your point, governments putting in legislation or standards that developers 
uh, have to uh, consider and put in when they're building uh, out their their areas, their their business parks, whatever the case might be. Oh, but wait a second, Scott. That then will also cost more money, which means that cost has to be thrown. You know what I mean? It just it just it just keeps getting downloaded, 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 and at the end of the day, it's you and I are the ones that are just forking out more cash left, right, and center. Because you know the developers don't want to lose money. They'll they'll make theirs, right? All the all the trades they'll make all their money. It's all going to come back to you and I. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Mike, when you hear that song, what do you think of? Oh, the 70s. <laughs> that was the song from <laughs> the SNL skit, maybe one of the most famous of all time. I need more cowbell with Christopher Walken, Blue so Oyster I'm Cult. Gonna- I didn't get into Saturday Night Live when I was a kid. I never watched it. Well, that is, okay, so that was, some people listening, they would have said, that's the, that's Blue Oyster Cult. That is the, I need more cowbell sketch. The reason I mentioned that, Christopher Walken, who was in that sketch, he was the, the celebrity host that night, turns 80 years old today, which I find um, kind of remarkable. But I, you know, the, I found this list the other day about Christopher Walken, and it was a, it was a list of, Actors who, no matter what they do, whether it's a lighthearted role or a funny role, whatever, actors who just by the way they look always come across as creepy in every single movie they do. Very much so. And he has a very distinct look and voice. Yeah, and and uh, delivery, yes, yes. Very much so in the way he delivers. Yeah. So he comes in on this list. He comes in at only number 10, which I would have had him much higher. Number nine was John Malkovich. Maybe. Okay. I, I would have had Christopher Walken ahead of him. Number eight, uh, absolutely, yes. One of the, uh, this sounds mean to say this, but it, it, it just, she is, she kind of looks, anything she does, she kind of, it's odd. Tilda Swinton. Do you know who Tilda Swinton is? You got to remind me on that one, pal. She is a very fair, like, she kind of looks like almost like a female David Bowie, only whiter. Um, what's her claim to fame? Uh, let's see. What has Tilda Swinton been in here? Let me see if I can find out. Um, uh, she won a best supporting actress for her 2007 film, Michael Clayton. Yeah, I didn't, uh, uh, what else has she been? She's been ranked as one of the greatest actors of the 21st century. It's amazing. We don't know what, what she's actually been in. I, I, I mean, when I see her, I, I, you know, I recognize her immediately. Some people would know what, um, uh, what was that, Ben? Snowpiercer. Okay, don't know that one. Um, nope. um, anyway, I'll come. I'll come back to this one. Uh, she played David Bowie's wife in a movie. That that is odd because she looks like David Bowie. Anyway, um, weirdest or well, actors who made when you see them, it's always a little bit creepy. Jackie Earl Haley. Jackie Earl Haley. You may not know the name off the top of your head. You got to go way back for this one. He's an adult actor now, of course. He was Kelly. In the bat in the original Bad News Bears with Walter Matthau, the uh, of course, the yeah, kid who right. was you know the the kid who was the good player, the pitcher, the smoker, but yeah. um, Crispin Glover. Okay, you remember Crispin Glover was in Back to the Future. He was certainly do uh, Michael J. Fox's sort of weird father, nerdy father, who and and again everything Crispin Glover is ever in, yeah, you go, oh, that's that's not going to be a normal role. Throws you a little <laughs> off. That's right. Uh, Vincent Chevelli. Now I'm trying to think what Vincent Chevelli is in. And again, this is one of those guys that you would know 100% you would know to see. And he is, uh, he was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He was in Fast Times at Ridgemount High. He was in Ghost. He was the subway ghost in there. He was in Batman Returns. Um, oh, he's been in all kinds of things. You would absolutely know him to see him. I, I won't, uh. Stick around. Uh, yeah, I just I just Googled him there, and you're right. I recognized him as soon as I saw him. Didn't put the name and the face together. Amazing, the amazing that everybody could know someone and have no idea what their name is. Uh, <laughs> number four, 100% on this next guy. Everything this next guy does, creepy to the hilt. Willem Dafoe, who just, he looks like a serial killer at all times. At all times. Willem Dafoe could do a guest scene on Barney. 
and you would think he's about to slaughter Barney. <laughs> very, very, very true. Yes. Does he have a machete with him? Cause Barney might want to get security. This is not going to go well. Uh, number three, one of my favorites because, and I'll take issue with this one that he, it's always weird, but it's not always creepy. He can be really funny. Steve Buscemi. Do you know, you know who Steve Buscemi is? He was in Fargo, but he was also in, um. Oh, he, uh, he played a really good role in, uh, in, um, Armageddon too. Sure. Creepy, in, yep. Um, but, uh, he was also, uh, to you, to your point, he was kind of funny too. Yeah, in, like he was in Grown Ups, and he was really funny with it on the, on the water slide. He's got the eyes that sort of go a little wild and, uh, he was, oh, and he was in the wedding singer. He was the, um. Uh, he, he was, what would he do? What do you do in the wedding singer? You would know him from there. Anyway, number yeah, two. And, and, and I'm just thinking if I remember correctly, sorry, I, I believe he was a former firefighter. Yes. And, and, uh, he put his uniform back on, went back to his old station during nine uh, 11. That is correct. And helped out with the boys for a week or two, 12 hour shifts. That's right. Yeah. That is right. Uh, so number two, people that are always actors that doesn't matter. We're talking about, uh, because of, um, uh, because of, uh, Christopher Walken turning 80, number two actors that are always creepy, Gary Busey. Oh yes. <laughs> which is, which is, is Gary Busey creepy or is he just weird? <laughs> I, I was going to go more with the weird part of it, but he has played some pretty creepy roles. Uh, you know, like in, in well, he's played some good roles in Buddy Holly and Point Break. And I also remember him in Rookie of the Year. That was where I really remember him from. Um, and then, and uh, the last one, and boy, I, how do I describe this person? Um, Michael Berryman and he, he has a, Michael Berryman is an actor who has a condition called hypohydrotic ectothermal, ectodermal dysplasia. And, um, he has been in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and The Hills Have Eyes and The X-Files and, um, he has a very unique look. He has a very sure. unique look. Yes. Was, was he not in Goonies? So I'm trying to picture that because I'm thinking he has that look, but I don't know if that was him or if that was another actor that was done up to look like. Yeah. Him. I, I, yeah. He was in weird science. He was way back in the day with uh, Kelly LeBrock. That was a, I wasn't watching for him when that movie was when I was watching that movie as a kid. Um, yeah, he's been, he's I been in a million. I don't see him in Goonies here. No. I just peeled him up. I don't, anyway. I don't see him in Goonies. So that must've been someone else. But to those who can't picture him, picture that guy in Goonies. Uh, that, that's kind of what he looks like. It is. Uh, it's funny though. Christopher Walken, it get, it, all this spawned by Christopher Walken, who is full measure for being maybe one of the creepiest and still in the one movie that he was not totally creepy in Deer Hunter is still out, still one of the great ones. So, and dear, Christopher Walken, he's one of those guys. I could listen to him talk forever. Like have him read me the phone book and like, I, I love his voice and how he, he, how he just portrays every word. It's just, it's very soothing. I find. You know what I would have loved to have seen back when Morgan Freeman narrated Mar the March of the Penguins or whatever it was called. I would have loved <laughs> to have heard Christopher Walken do that instead. It would have oh. gone from being this warm, fuzzy story about penguins just making their way on the frozen tundra to wait, when does the one of the penguins stab the other one to death? <laughs> you just know it's coming. You know it's coming. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Mike Fortune is with us today. Mike is the host of the Hamilton Network on Cable 14. He is, um, well, he, he's a lot of other things. You see him around town. He does events. He, he, not on Cable 14, anytime there's an election, he's the moderator of that, which I believe... After the last election, he may still be in therapy for, for that. Is that, is that fair, Mike? Uh, yeah, you know, it, listen, <laughs> it, it, it was a long haul. It, it, it really was, but I will always throw, uh, it all back, honestly, Scott, to the team behind me, you know. Oh, I thought you were going to say you would always throw your body on the grenade of politics to, gosh, uh, to... no, gosh, no, <laughs> no, no, 
Recovering slightly, I guess. Uh, I love every minute, but it's the team behind me at Cable 14 that puts everything together. At the end of the day, I'm just the guy standing in the studio directing traffic, you know, and that's how I look at it. Just try to have some fun with it. All right. Speaking of having fun, in North Carolina, there is a lawmaker down there, a... um uh, uh, in the state Senate, I, I thought he was a congressman, but it's in the state Senate down there that uh, he has brought forward a bill that is really interesting, I think. It will ban, if it's passed, it will ban participation trophies for kids in youth sports. It will say that awards can be given to athletes only based on identified performance achievements. No more trophies just for showing up and telling kids that everyone is equally good no matter how much effort or success you have. Brilliant idea or huge overreaction. I would love to do the uh, the slow golf clap right now because I think it's uh, I think it's about time we get we get back to that. Look, I understand we all have to be a welcoming community and everyone should be part of something and so on and so forth. But is it truly teaching you life skills? Um, you know, you played a lot of sports. I played a lot of sports. I I I won, but I also lost a lot. And if it was just understood, if you lose, you don't get a first, second, or third. You get your first, second, third ribbon. After that, you get nothing. And I truly believe that builds a lot more character. It builds a lot more understanding of teamwork, work ethic, what you got to put in to, to, to earn something, as opposed to just saying, hey, thanks for coming out. You all get something. I know there's people out there listening, shaking their heads, going, Mike, come on. You got to do better, think better. Um, but I, I, I think sports, at a, when you get to an age uh, where it's, it's not just about participating. It's about building life skills and keeping a score, winning and losing, I think is important to be taught. Well, and my question with this always is the same when, we, when it comes back to this, and that is, When I was in high school or even middle school, for example, when I was in middle school, when my kids were in middle school, they gave out, the school gave out a plaque. They had a, for example, a science award. They had a music award. They had a math award. They had a history award. Each of the classes, the top kid got a plaque. They didn't give out a trophy to every kid who took those courses. When, when you go to, um, try out for the school band. They have a first trumpet, a second trumpet, a first violin, a second violin, whatever else. Everybody doesn't get to be first violin. When your school is putting on for a play, if your school is is performing Les Mis, everybody doesn't get to be Jean Valjean or Fontaine. So there are other, there are certain people who get to be in that role at the front, who get to star, who get that science trophy. Why is only sports the place where we have decided that everybody must be getting an award just for showing up and trying and that there's no benefit or no lesson learned that doing well comes with benefits. Well, probably because like everything um, in this world, uh, over time, you know, parents were, they were, they were heartbroken and upset that little Susie and Bobby you know, didn't win a T-ball game, but boy, they sure, they showed up and they tried their best and all that. And yet they're in tears. Uh, it's not, it, it, it's, it's not enough anymore to, to, to understand what it takes to win and lose. Sure. So but I, why just sports, Mike? Because my examples, yeah. I mean, I say like in school for the school awards, everybody doesn't get one. Why mm-hmm. is it only sports that we have decided that everybody has to get an award? Great question. I don't have an answer. I could, I could start to maybe throw out some ideas. I, I don't know. I, I, it, it bothers me, and, and, but I don't, I don't have an answer. That's got, do you have an opinion on that? Do you have a thought as to how it got this bad? Uh, not a good one. I mean, uh, like it's a legitimate, <laughs> no, it's a legitimate question that I have that I've never understood why this particular part of our society of our, of our life, we have decided that doing well, um, 
like we, we mock almost if you're, if you're a jock, like we have a, we have a word for the kids who are really good in sports. We call them a jock and, and oftentimes the stereotype is, well, they're kind of dumb and you know that, well, sure they're good at sports, but you know, that's all they're good at. Well, what about the kids who are only good at science and can't do anything else in their life? We don't go, oh, well, they're only good at science. No, we celebrate them for the thing that they are excellent at. And we should celebrate them for the thing that they are excellent at. Yet if you're really good at sports, we somehow make it sound like you're some sort of big dummy and you're not going to go anywhere in life. And so maybe because, you know, sports isn't really that important, we decide we have to give everyone this equal trophy and not show, not show, not give credit to the kids who are really good at it because it's not that important for them to get this kind of uh, award. Well, I don't know. And, 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 you know, I, I disagree. I I disagree with that a little bit. I'm not saying you said it, but in general, people have said it. Sports aren't that important. I think sports are extremely important. And yes, you're going to have your, you, you have, you follow lots of student athletes. I know you were at the, uh, at the, the national volleyball championship and you followed the men and the women, OUA basketball. These are student athletes and every coach, I believe every program puts, puts academia first and then it's then it comes into the sports side of things. And I truly believe, you know, I, I used to do a lot of hiring, and I'd have resumes that would come across my desk. And if I saw someone that was on a sports team, as opposed to someone who wasn't on a sports team, I would I would kind of give them first crack first because sports teaches you so much more than what 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 book smarts does. That's that's how I look at it at least. Why this has fallen into in sports, you all need a participation badge um, because maybe at, in the beginning, it would become a very competitive society. But back in the day, sports was, it was just supposed but to wait be wait a second. Fun. Isn't sports it's like become a business now? What's wrong with competitiveness? What's wrong with, comp- this is part of the, I think this really comes, this may answer what we're talking about because we say, well, competition, you know, it's too competitive. And then, you know, what's wrong with competition? Competition. There's nothing wrong with competition because whether you're the top scientist or geographer in the world or, or what, there's competition in that as well. You want to be the first to discover a new, uh, uh Whatever. vaccine. Yeah. You, 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 competition is in everything that we do. That's how I look at it. There's always a level of competition. But we've, we, part of this participation trophy thing in my mind is that we have decided we are uncomfortable. Some people are uncomfortable with the concept of competition. We're uncomfortable with someone winning and somebody else losing. And therefore we want to make it so that everyone is equal, which to me is not only lying to kids, quite honestly, because again, this is sports as the example, but in the rest of their life, they're going to soon find everyone is not equal. We have things that we're good at and things we're bad at, and it's not all the same, but we also somehow have decided that if your feelings are hurt because you haven't won, that that's somehow a bad thing that you should never have hurt feelings. To me, you know what, Mike, hurt feelings motivate you to do better, whether it's in sports or something else. But, but again, we've become soft. We're politically, we've become a more politically correct. And everything you're saying, Scott, I agree with you 100%. I, 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 I don't disagree with anything you said. We've become a very soft society. And it, it, it's very, very unfortunate that this is the route that we've taken. And, I, you know, I have a daughter. She's heavily involved in club and, and, and athletic sports. And, you know, I, I watch other parents and I watch teammates who are on the bench and, uh, you know, all this coddling over the years, it now starts to play a role into the starters, the bench players, the parents who come out to support their kid and who might not be on the court as much. Uh, it's, it, it really is a trickle down effect. I think that at the end of the day, it doesn't help the student athlete, uh, preparing them for their future. That's for sure. I can tell you, this isn't a sports thing. I can tell you that in my career, the, the, the times that I have learned the most and improved the most have been not the result of the successes that I've had, if I've had any mm-hmm. successes. It's almost always the result of the things that I messed up. The times that I was embarrassed or was down or made a mistake or did something that, boy, I really wish that hadn't happened or someone else was better than me. Those are when I have learned and become better at something. And in sports, this is the example to me, is that if we say 
you know, we don't really want to honor someone for being better. We want everyone, doesn't matter how you do, you're all the same. To me, it's missing an opportunity for people to become better athletes, but not just better athletes. It's an opportunity to just learn that you have to work at being better at something. And not everybody, Mike, here's the other thing. Not everybody has to be good at sports. There's not, there's not a, you know, we almost have put this thing in place that says, well, if you're not good at sports, somehow you're, you know, mom and dad didn't produce proper DNA. That's no, no, it's okay not to be good at sports because you're probably really good at something else. At the end of the day, I think what any parent wants is for their, their child to be a good person. And, and how do you learn to be a good person? You learn to be a good person by having good values, whether it be sports, whether it be studying for that science exam. And yes, you are going to have people that uh, interpret things and, and can retain information a lot better than others. Um, and and if, if you're not in academia, you have to work harder to get that, that mark that you need to stay on a sports team, to be able to go out that next night with your friends, whatever the case might be. It, it, it's, life is about winning, failing. You, you, Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, they got all these quotes out there. Kobe Bryant, you, you got to push yourself in anything that you do if you want to be great. May Michael Jordan got cut from his grade nine basketball team. How different might, we don't know, how different might Michael Jordan have been if he had not had that as a motivator? We don't know. The basketball world would probably look a lot different right now. I go back though, we got to take a break in a second though, but I go back to my point that I started this with. I don't understand why we don't hold the same expectation of participation trophies in anything other than sports that, that I've never, maybe it's happened. I'm sure it's happened. I, I shouldn't say it's never happened, but I've never heard a story from any teacher saying Ma, that, you know what, I, I had to choose who was going to play what instrument or be what role in the school band or who was going to play what role in the school play. And the parent marched down and screamed at me because their son is the second trumpet instead of the first trumpet. I've never heard that story. And yet I guarantee you in sports, you, I'm not playing on the first line. He's not playing as a center, whatever. Guaranteed that happens all the time. But, and, you, and I know we got to go, but I'm fairly, we've never heard those conversations, but I think those conversations come in because parents are too protective of their children and, and they don't want to have to see them with, you know, little Susie have tears in her eyes. So let's go to the principal. Let's go to that music teacher. Do you think that happens? Mike, do you think that happens with, with, uh, academic awards? Do you think when they present the science award that someone's parents come up after and go, why did my son or why did my, my daughter not get that award? I've never heard that happen. Well, I think you've, I, I've heard of, of, of parents upset that, you know, little Joey, you know, only got a, a 92 on a science mark when the, you know, why didn't they get a 98 and they would, they'll go in and have conversations with the counselor or the teacher. I've heard of that by all means. But usually, uh, and maybe, you know, there's teachers out there listening who can tell me if I'm wrong on this one, and I may be, but usually when I've heard those stories, it's because uh, it's not about getting the, being better than someone else. It's, you know, maybe you marked too hard or something else, but it's not that they have to be first. It's not that they have to be first in the class. They want a better mark for their kid. They want their kid to do better. This is, sport seems to be that it's, we don't want anyone to be first. We want everyone to be equal, at least some people. And I don't get it. I don't get why that's the lone area in our society that we seem to do this with all the time. Oh, hey, let's, we, we, so we live and die by sports. A lot of us, if you're a sports fan, and, and maybe everyone thinks that their child's going to be that next great person. So in, well. instead of, instead of pushing them down and, and hurting their feelings, let's make them feel good. But again, that is not going to get them anywhere either. Hey, so may, I, and, and maybe we're missing the point here. Maybe we maybe. are. Maybe we should have more awards, more participation trophies, because if so, the Leafs have won 55 Stanley Cups since 1967. <laughs> We've just missed out on the parades because we haven't done this right. Hey, and if I could have got a participation uh, a, a trophy or something for every 
for every 50 that I got in high school classes, I would have a full trophy room. <laughs> Mike, um, you know, Friends never seems to go away. Friends has been off the air now for, it's hard to believe, it's like 25 years or something it's been off the air. But Jennifer Aniston, who of course played Rachel Green on Friends, everyone, that, that part I didn't even probably need to add. Everyone knows who Jennifer Aniston is. Um, she was doing an interview this week and said, you know what, uh, Friends, the show, is offensive to a whole generation of kids now. There is an entire generation that is coming up that finds so much stuff in Friends unwatchable because it is so offensive to them. <laughs> and I got thinking about this and I thought, yeah, you know, there's probably a few things in there that would be offensive, but have we completely then lost our ability to just not be offended at anything and just laugh about something? Completely. Completely. I, I, I read that, and, and first off, I have to say, Jennifer Aniston, 25 year, years later, still looks like she could play Rachel. She anyway. does. She does. Um, my son is a huge Friends of fan, uh, a, a huge fan of Friends. Sorry. <laughs> or, or the other way. Or the other way, however you want it. <laughs> um, and and we, we've talked about this. He doesn't find any of it offensive, but he's in tune enough to, to know that, you know what, nowadays... Those lines couldn't be written. You couldn't act that out. And that it's not just friends. I think if you go back, look at look at Cheers and look look what you know, classic all time. One of my favorite. But are some of those episodes really appropriate nowadays? Um, the the list can really go on and on if you want to dissect everything that has happened in the past. But we've talked about this, I think, as well, Scott. The past is the past. Let's learn from it, and let's not be so sensitive. Whether it's sports participation, whether it's a TV show from 20 years ago, my gosh, folks, let just bygones be bygones. Just try to ease up a little bit. But doesn't it say something that, again, I think Friends went off the air. It's, it may be 25 years, but nonetheless, it's not, you know, we're not talking about something that was 100 years ago. And in that, no. just in that period of time, We've apparently reached the point where what happened then is unacceptable. It just, to me, what this tells me, what this tells, I think should tell a lot of other people is, you know, many of the people today who are the ones screaming loudest that they are being offended and that whatever it is must be canceled because it doesn't fit within their sensibilities, what they don't realize is that in 10 or 15 or 20 years, the positions they are holding are going to be offensive to someone and they're going to be shocked to find out they're the ones who are offensive and they're the ones who have to be canceled. Everything that comes around goes around. Exactly. Won't that be a shock to some people when they find out I am the most least of, I am the least offensive, most open-minded person in the world. And then in 10 years, you find out we can't listen to you. What you said was so grossly offensive that it must be shut down. They'll be shocked. And, and there's lots of stuff that's being said nowadays by individuals that's, that's, that is to that point, I think, Scott, and and they're feeling it a little more quicker because of social media. And I think maybe that plays into a lot of this as well, because you can just have these conversations with people who you, you, you can all of a sudden go online and find so many more like minded people like yourself. And then the momentum and the snowball can start to build. And then the next thing you know, it's a blizzard out there and everyone's yelling and screaming and, and, and not happy. You know, let's ban friends. Let's never have that air ever again because, you know, Ross upset someone in the line. When back in the day, it was just supposed to be good, clean fun. Well, and something else about this show, this is not what, well, she did talk about this in the interview. Uh, it was something that was up earlier was there has been complaint. There have been complaints about friends and criticism of friends that all six of them were white and there was no diversity on the show. And, you know, okay, that's fine. If you want to have a show that has diversity, but is there no group of six people of the same racial background anywhere? Is it, it like, Mike, I don't know if, if, is there nobody who has, who might live with say five and they're all black friends or five all Asian friends or five all white friends. Oh, we're, we're treading some interesting water right here. But, well, we? no, but is this it, like it's, the idea, the idea that somehow everything must have one of everybody is maybe ideal if you're looking at a series of commercials on TV now where every commercial has one of everybody. Or big brother. But it's not. But how, how is that a problem? That's my question is how is it a problem that you had six white friends 
who spent time together. I'm sure there are lots of examples of six people who are of the same racial makeup who spend their days together. And it doesn't make them racist and it doesn't make them bad people and it doesn't make them excluding anyone or xenophobic. It means that those are the friends you're with. And this is where things have just got so micromanaged and and, and however you want to break it down, they just pick at every little thing that they can because it doesn't fall within whatever their reality is. And I'm not here to criticize how anyone lives, who they hang out with, what they believe, don't believe in, how they live. I couldn't care less. It's really unfortunate that this light is being shone on, on what has happened in the past and how we are all now expected to kind of live our life and how we are supposed to believe in certain things. It's, it's, it's almost embarrassing. And I, maybe I'm going way above a, a, into the deep end here, but it's almost embarrassing because to your point, it's, it's like really folks, that's what you're going to focus on instead of the acting, instead of the, just the half hour downtime, just to chill and not worry about your day-to-day problems. Okay. So in the show, for example, and, and one of the creators has said she's embarrassed uh, about some of the jokes that were made. One of the, one of the recurring jokes was that one of Ross's ex-wives had left him for another woman. And so there were some, some gay jokes in there, which she says are now homophobic. So that fall, then the next question has to be, I think most people, at least publicly would not admit to watching the Cosby show anymore after Bill Cosby's stuff that happened with him. Is it now a point where you can't admit to watching Friends because there's too much problematic stuff in Friends? No, I, I will admit that I watch Friends. I love the show. I, and it, it's too bad that you can't have a simple conversation with people about sitcoms from the past. And, you know, I enjoyed that character. I enjoyed that storyline, whatever the case might be. And I do believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Friends was probably one of the first shows to actually introduce an interracial couple when they brought Charlie on and she started to date Ross and then she had a little fling with Joey. So, you know, friends, uh, you want to pick at it, but also look at some of the things they opened your eyes to as well. Very good point. Um, You know, we're talking about sitcoms. We're going to take a break here, but one of the, one of the ones that I, I always do wonder, and I know it's still on TV. I always do wonder what would happen in 2023 if someone walked into a, network boardroom and says, okay, I've got this great idea. It's a show. It's called Hogan's Heroes. And it's about guards at a prisoner of war camp in World War II. And these are the German guards. The 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 entire network brass would drop dead of a stroke immediately just at the suggestion. Oh, sorry. So we're wait, we're having we're having the Nazis as the hilarious foils here. I'm sorry. Is that what I'm getting? Like the it's it's almost unbelievable to even think how even then that was made, let alone could you imagine now trying to make that move that show. Yeah, and and you really you, you could again, you could dissect TV shows, movies, music from some of the great crooners back in the day where people will be like, oh, you can't be saying, you know, Dean Martin, uh, give me the pillow you, you lay your head on. Like, heaven for, you know, standing on the corner watching all the girls go by. Holy crow, heaven forbid. Um, it's, it's, it's really a shame how sensitive and how far to the one side we have gone as a society where we just can't just chill a little bit and just enjoy life. Mike, this is, um, baseball season brings with it all kinds of new things, a new pitch clock and bigger bases and other rules. And the New York Yankees seeking an exemption from Major League Baseball because in Major League Baseball, you may only have uniform numbers going from 1 to 99. Well, the New York Yankees now have 22 retired numbers, by far the most in baseball. And by the time you put all the guys who are on a roster or guys who may get called up who have a number, and then 11, I believe it is, coaches, they're starting to get a little squeezed in here. And so they're saying, can we not go over 100? We're not asking to go into the three digits. We're simply asking, can our coaches not have a number? Which led me, Mike, to the bigger question. Why the heck are coaches in baseball in 2023 wearing a baseball uniform anyway? 
I, I think at this point, you know, the great game of baseball, what, for uh, just before the, the 1900s and all that, I think it just comes down to tradition. Sure. Uh, of course it does. Probably, superstitions probably involved because, uh, again, from my baseball knowledge and touring Cooperstown and all that, you know, back in the day, they didn't have a manager, but they would have a, a, a player coach, if you will. Yes. Yes, and, everybody and, was, everyone who was there, the, the, the guy who was the manager was a player. You're right. So that's why he used to wear a uniform. That's the origin. And, and, and so that, to my, my point then, that what I said earlier, it's just tradition uh, and superstition as, as we, we kind of move forward. And uh, I, I know Connie Mack, he was one of the last managers, I think, to actually wear a suit. I don't know the story as to why he went from uniform to suit. Uh, but it just, it's just, it's one of those things that I don't know how, how it would look to see a manager in a dugout with chew or spit or seeds in his mouth, uh, wearing a three piece suit and, and going out to the mound. And I, uh, but you wouldn't have to do that because even look like in, in the NBA now, guys used to wear three piece suits when Pat Riley was coaching the Lakers. He was one of the best dressed guys in sports. Yeah. Now, what are they wearing? They're wearing, you know, golf pants and either a polo shirt or a, a warm up jacket. So, I mean, you could have a baseball manager who's sitting there wearing the exact same thing, basically looking like he's working at Staples. Wearing yeah, khakis yeah, no, and, a, my, and a polo only, shirt. You know, the whole basketball thing, I think, changed uh, because of COVID, yes, right? In and the then, bubble and everything. Yes, yes. So let, let's make things simpler. Now, to your point, will, w- would that make some sense? Yeah. You know what? Uh, you, you get into those more comfortable pants, and they all wear a, a, a Blue Jays uh, quarter oh, zip with a yeah. logo on it. Hey, I, you just want them to look uniform. Or a polo shirt or whatever. Sure. I mean, I don't know why coaches always need a number, though. That one has always kind of baffled me a little bit. I think it's, I think, and, and again, I don't know this for sure. I think it's because of the possibility that a coach might say something and get tossed out of the game and the ump has to be able to say, hey, number 11, you're out of here. Mm-hmm. Look, if we're following through with this tradition, simply for the odd time that the first base coach is going to get tossed, it seems as though we're sticking to a tradition we really don't need to be. And, I, and I'll tell you, I've thought about this more than a few times over the years. We demand that baseball coaches be in uniform, which is ridiculous, quite frankly. Imagine if we demanded the same of, say, hockey coaches or football coaches, that they had to be on this. The hockey coach has to be on the bench in full equipment, ready to go, even though there's no chance he's going to get in there. I mean, we would think this is the stupidest thing we've ever seen in our entire life. Uh, agreed. Uh, agreed. And it comes back to, uh, again, I guess, tradition. Uh, you know, you, you couldn't see Vince Lombardi standing on the lines. <laughs> but but you, you notice how, how, how the coaching clothing has changed so much. I like the old stuff with sure. the sidelines and you see the guys in the suits and all that. Now you see guys like Bill Belichick with torn, you know, I know, yeah, sweaty looking t-shirts that don't even fit properly. So they've gone from one extreme to the other. Uh, I, I think a suit uh, demands a little bit more respect. Yeah, Tom Landry, authority. Tom Landry, go back to the Tom Landry yeah. days with, uh, or, or you know, or the the Bear Bryant with the hat. But you know, again, we could even take this further. I mean, think think about it, like tennis players; they have coaches. <laughs> They're sitting in the stands, so now uh, Venus Williams' coach or Serena Williams' coach has to be sitting in the stands dressed in t- in white tennis garb, or or even better, even better, you've got a boxer now, and so you have to come dressed as a boxer with gloves on and shorts and a robe, and you're I mean it's it's so stupid when you when you take it down to the to the lengths of what it would be if we were to do the same in other sports that we do in baseball John Herdman coaching uh coaching team Canada <laughs> soccer there right <laughs> you know now what I don't want such. what I don't want to see is some guy who coaches the women's beach volleyball team somewhere <laughs> put on his little spandex two piece no that 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 would <laughs> definitely not look good uh, you know as much as baseball is changing and ha- and really Baseball is changing, but really, they're just having to reinforce rules that were already there, I believe. Yes. Yeah. It's just the game itself has taken on its own aura. The players have taken over. The umps were a little lax. So really, everything that we're seeing, aside from the bigger bases, is all stuff that's all been there. It's just being emphasized more. And 
I'm a purist. I'm a realist. I'm a traditionalist when it comes to the great sport of baseball. I don't want to see player or coaches in, in suits and all that. I like when they're wearing the pants. You know, I know there's a big thing. A lot of managers, like Cito Gaffney, was one of the first, I think, managers to constantly wear a batting uh, jacket over. And, and I have no problem with that. Have them wear the uniform from the bottom down, and if they just throw on a, a pullover, you don't have to have a number on them, that's fine. The ump can say, Schneider, you're out, you know, whatever the case might be. They, they can fix all that stuff without having to give jersey numbers to coaches, I think. Here is, uh, here is the list, and uh, just keep in mind, no future New York Yankee can wear a number prior to number 10. Every single wow. number from one to 10 is out. Uh, number one, Billy, Mar- all these are retired numbers. Billy Martin, number one, Derek Jeter, number two, Babe Ruth, three, Lou Gehrig, four, Joe DiMaggio, five, Joe Torre, six, Mickey Mantle, seven, Yogi Berra, eight, Bill Dickey, also eight, Roger Maris, nine, Phil Rizzuto, 10, Thurman Munson, 15, Whitey Ford, 16, Jorge Posada, 20, Paul O'Neill, 21. That shouldn't have happened. Tw- number 23, Don right. Mattingly, number 32, Elston Howard, 37, Casey Stengel, 42, Mariano Rivera, and Jackie Robinson, which is league-wide. Number 44, Reggie Jackson, 46, Andy Pettit, 49, Ron Guidry, and 51, Bernie Williams. That's a lot of retired numbers. A lot of retired numbers, and you know, you got you know, a few more years down the road, you're going to be adding number 99 to that, probably. Um, uh, so yeah, I don't know what the Yankees are going to do. Uh, I appreciate the tradition, and it's quite the honor, but decimals, at some point, decimals, uh, We're gonna, decimals. I'm now, I'm now number 2.6. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And I guess this young kid, Volpe, who, who made the team, he requested number 11 from another player and he was, it was given to him. So yeah, it's going to make it a little more difficult, but, uh, Hey, those are problems that the Steinbrenners can deal with. <laughs> yeah. Well, the original reason for numbers, by the way, I think most people know this was mm-hmm. batting order. Batting order. That's it was right. batting order. You wore the number of where you were going to be batting and think about that as we go to break here. If you were given a number and that's the one you became, think how little then teams ever fiddled around with their batting order. Like never. They put you in there and you were in there for the rest of your career, basically. It's amazing. Anyway. Hey, it it, it makes you know that you're in the lineup every day at least. Yeah. Mike Fortune, thanks for doing this today. Have a great weekend. Always a pleasure. Stay well, boys. That is, uh, that is Mike Fortune. You can catch him on the Hamilton Network on Cable 14. It's on often. You can, uh, you can find it there many, many times during the week. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.